2: W A B E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. When models walk down the runway, they appear remarkably poised and pulled together. Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the curtain? A new exhibit at the Scadfash Museum in Atlanta reveals the chaos and teamwork behind the scenes. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans sits down with photographer Robert Ferrer and curator Rafael Gomez to discuss the show, Backstage Pass, Dior, Galliano, Jacobs, and McQueen. Also, the next installment in our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear from an Atlanta artist in their own words. Today, featuring painter, sculptor, and muralist Lauren Stumberg. First... A museum without walls exploring 21st century contemporary art and culture of the African diaspora. That's the mission of the African Diaspora Art Museum of Atlanta, also known as ADAMA, through exhibitions, programs, and artists' residencies. Adama educates and showcases the many contributions of Black artists and thinkers. Adama founder and scholar Dr. Fahamu Peku joins me now via Zoom with the Comanze Dance Theater creative director, Rayana Brown. Welcome to
3: City Light. Thank you for having us, Lois. It's always a pleasure to sit with you. Yes,
4: thank you so much.
3: Even virtually.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Fahamu,
2: how did you come up with the idea for Adama?
3: Well, Adama is something I think that has kind of been percolating in my my mind for many, many years. But really, as I began traveling more and more, you know, doing exhibitions and other, other types of work, I would often find myself really drawn to the similarities you know, that I saw in Black people in my travels throughout the African diaspora. And I just thought that was really fascinating. And I also felt that there was this sort of deficit in terms of culture and institutional offerings in the city of Atlanta and felt like, you know, in a city like Atlanta that touts itself as this Black cultural mecca, we should have an institution that represents that. And while we have, you know, several spaces that are dedicated to civil rights history and African-American history, they're all very much spaces of nostalgia. And I was asking the question of myself, like, what happens if we create a space that affirms us, you know, here in the present and into the future? Like, what does that look like and what does that say to, you know, young people growing up and trying to see images of themselves that affirm them?
2: Interesting. I hadn't thought of that as nostalgia. Certainly the historic context is important in those spaces, but you bring new meaning to this now. Please tell us about the museum's credo. Everywhere we go, there we are.
3: Yeah, that that again comes out of those experiences traveling and going to a a small village in Panama called Portorello and having food that tasted like something that my grandmother made or traveling to South Africa and, you know, having experiences with like church choirs that felt like the church choirs that I grew up in South Carolina. You know, it's just like in all of these different pockets and di- different places around the world, you find a sense of connection and familiarity that I think is is really very specific to Blackness and the fact that we've all kind of been dispersed from places and found new homes in other places. And so there's a common, like, connection. And I just felt like everywhere we go, there we are. Like, I see us everywhere I go, like, we're already there. And I just felt like that was a, a really, like, affirming thing. And again, something that I felt needs to be, like, celebrated in a big way.
2: Mm. Rihanna, would you tell us, please, how the collaboration between comanche Dance Theater and Adama came about?
4: Yes, I can. It actually started, Fahamu and I first met during an interview on, I think it was WABE for the Elevate Festival for the City of Atlanta. Yes. Yeah. I My company, Comanse, was commissioned to restage one of our shows and Fahamu was in charge of curating the festival that year. And then shortly after that show, we spoke about collaborating and I think we had two collaborations before we started working on permanent project with the Adama and Kamance collaboration. It started during, I think it was right after the height of the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. and I reached out to Fahamu with an idea of wanting to collaborate with the museum. And my initial idea was for it to be more of like a one-time thing just to bring the art to life in the museum and create a sort of sense of connection at a time where everybody was isolated and stuck inside and quarantining. And we were really missing that piece of um, communal art. And then from there and meetings with Bahamu, and then he pitched it to our first collaborator, which is the High Museum of Art in Midtown. And from there, it grew into the Permanent Project and where we are today.
2: I understand a painting by Radcliffe Bailey played a role, inspiration for the Permanent Project?
3: Each iteration of Permanent Project, we engage with a work that is in, in this instance, the High Museum's Permanent Collection. So we, we go through and we select works by Black artists in those Permanent Collections and then create responses to them, interdisciplinary responses to them, as a way of opening them up and open up the conversation, but also creating greater access points to the themes and ideas in the work. And so when we initially began the project, we had an opportunity to tour the High Museum's collection and we selected the Radcliffe piece as our starting point because of the themes that are in that work and how they connected to what we were trying to do.
2: (laughs) Now the work of photographer Dawood Bey is at the center of this iteration. Your film will have its world premiere at the High Museum. Would you please describe Bey's photograph, a couple in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, New York, and how Comanze created an original dance performance inspired by the photo?
4: The image that we chose, Couple in Prospect Park, is a photograph of two young people, a young Black man and a young Black woman embracing and facing towards the camera. And so we use that as our inspiration for this film. And one of the themes that we really wanted to pull out, of course, was love and looking at the different pieces of love and the moments that make up a loving relationship and how all of those pieces coming together are what really creates the full picture. And so for this iteration of Permanent, I decided that I wanted to collaborate with other choreographers to create the movement vocabulary partially because I wanted to expand the reach of what we're able to do with Permanent Project and bring other artists into this space and give them the same platform, but also because I wanted to work with the theme of partnership and what comes out of when two narratives come together to create a new story. So I collaborated with 10 choreographers local to Atlanta, all choreographers of color. And then from there, we kind of crafted this storyline of love which takes looks at these different couples and couplings of people in different partnerships and loving relationships and seeing how they interact to create this bigger picture. That's kind of the, the quick version of it.
2: Well, I think the film is very beautifully done and I was hoping you could give us sort of a sneak preview of Corey Johnson. Okay, Cello created and performed the music. And can you talk
4: about the
2: colors, the location, the use of words within the film?
4: Corey actually worked in partnership with another musician, Asha Toon. So with the score, what I really wanted to do was create that same sort of collaboration of what can come from when two people who come from different backgrounds create something completely new based off how their artistry interacts. So Asha works more in trap music, producer, hip hop space and then Okori works more in in like a cello space and so it was really interesting to have them come together on that. And we had lots of meetings where I would describe like sounds or colors or memories that we wanted the music to feel like and then kind of let them roll with that so that they could bring their own artistic vision and artistic voices to the project, making it have more depth creatively as well.
3: Yeah, one of the things that I absolutely love about working on a permanent project is those early creative brainstorming sessions that we do when we take a look at the image that we're going to be referencing and we do these really deep dives into the the mood and the language and everything that that comes out of the piece. And, you know, as you'll see in, in this film, you know, you see evidence of this close reading of the photograph, of the subtlety of the touch between the two figures in the photographs, the intensity in their eyes, the, the compassion with which the photo was taken by Dawood Bey. You you get all of those things when you look at the photo and what we've tried to do is is extract some of that. And then also through the use of color, Continue this idea of the movement, this interaction, this dance between these two figures as we, you know, unpack this idea of what it means to to love someone and what it means to be together with someone, especially as young Black people in a world that so often tries to pull us apart.
2: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights Sound W A B E. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with. African Diaspora Art Museum of Atlanta founder Fahamu Peku and Kamansé Dance Theater creative director Rihanna Brown. Words are central to your art as well, Fahamu. In the credits, I saw you actually did not write the narration.
3: No, no, I did not. I believe this was a friend of Rihanna's who the uh, narration and the the poetry, which is absolutely uh, just, I mean, it it adds such a beautiful layer to the piece, I think. Yes, indeed.
2: Historically, how have dance and art been vital to self-expression for people of African
3: descent? That's a beautiful question. And, you know, it's something I think about a lot in you know, try to incorporate into my own creative practice. But for me, it's about understanding that art is so much bigger than the often very small ways that we think about it. Like, it literally is this divine language that exists between us and something greater. And one of the most immediate ways of expressing that language is through the body, right? Through the, the movement of the body, whether it be dance or painting or, or, or drawing like I often feel like you know when I'm moving my brush or pencil on, it's a dance for me mm. so I think there's something very uh, very urgent about that and very potent about that and it allows for us to read all of these different things into this image or into this movement into this moment that takes us beyond where we are.
2: Oh, I love that description, Rihanna. I would think, as a dancer and choreographer, you must also love the idea of a paintbrush or just the process of moving paint on canvas as a dance form. That's so amazing.
4: Yes, I love that thought. For me, it's very similar to what Bahamu said. It's for me, it's about finding like the dance and the the divinity in the things that we think are everyday, the things that we think are mundane about ourselves, but there's something so divine in the way that, especially for me when I'm creating, looking at Black people and how they move through the world and how they move through the space, through their spaces, that there's something just so beautiful about that, that I think deserves the emphasis of being put into a museum and being put on Uh, stage and being put in a film to show like yes the subtle way that you move your arm when the person you're in love with touches you is also art and is represented in this photograph and this painting and just and really allowing people to see themselves reflected in the art that we're creating and in the movement that they're seeing I think is one of the most special parts about dance and, and moving and creating dance work for me. Have
2: you shown the film to Dawood Bey?
4: Not yet.
3: Yeah, I'm excited for him to see it, especially just thinking about, again, the way he approaches his work as a photographer. Like, that was something else that we also took into consideration. And so, you know, we tried to employ that as well in, in the way the film is, is shot, but also in the way it was created.
2: As a dharma, moves
3: forward
2: with projects such as this how does it feel to have created a space so specific
3: to what's essential to your beliefs for me it's it's like a responsibility as as rayana was saying there's something so profound in the subtlety with which we carry our greatness To be in a society that oftentimes devalues what you bring to the table you know like it engenders a sense of like feeling of being being less than as you grow up in in that kind of environment and so as an artist i've always been invested in images of our being of our blackness in its most natural common form that i can imagine because there's something powerful in that right there's something so great in that, that people try to deny it, that people tell you that there's nothing there, right? I think as an artist, as an institution, you know, as collaborators, when we work, we are always very intentional about putting front and center that person who may not see themselves reflected in any other space, because that story is important too. And and oftentimes, because it's so greatly silenced, it's an even more potent story that needs to be heard.
2: Is it a goal for Adama to have a permanent space inside a building?
3: Oh, yes, most certainly. For the first couple of years as we were organizing and planning, we had imagined that we would not be able to do things until we had an actual space, until we had a physical space. And so we expended a lot of energy in trying to have a physical space in order to validate our presence. But 2020 gave us a brand new perspective on things when we saw people being confined to their homes and, you know, confined to screens. We saw that as an opportunity to present who we are and what we were proposing to bring to the city in an innovative way. And so that's how we became a museum without walls. It wasn't something that we initially like set out to do. We just kind of stumbled into this space and, and realized that there's a great wealth of potential and possibility in this space that will make, when we have a physical space, even more dynamic.
2: African Diaspora Art Museum of Atlanta founder Fahamu Peku and Comanse Dance Theater creative director Rihanna Brown. The world premiere of Permanent was scheduled to be screened at the High Museum this Friday, January 7th but is now being postponed until February due to rising COVID numbers. More information about ADAMA, as well as the date for the rescheduled screening once it's announced, will appear on our website, wabe.org slash City In a moment, the next installment of our series, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear from Atlanta artists in their own words. Today, featuring Lauren Stumberg, you're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words.
5: Hi, my name is Lauren Pilata stumberg and I am a painter... sculptor and a muralist. I've been doing art since I was a child. Uh, My parents were really encouraging of it and um, I ended up going to art school at the University of Michigan studying graphic design but spending all of my non-graphic design classes uh, painting and doing more hands-on work. After college I went to the Marshall Islands and lived with a host family there and was fortunate to live with like a master weaver. So I got to learn their traditional methods of weaving with pandanus, plated pandanus. I ended up staying there for most of my 20s. From there, I went to Sicily. And a lot of my work is inspired by the journey of the human spirit. Um, so I infuse a lot of symbolism into each of my paintings. And I have a thing with magpies, uh, which in my work are an omen of change and a calling to enter a crucible of the spirit. I chose the magpie because, well, number one, in Sicily I would see them everywhere and I kind of got really curious about them and the woman whose house I was staying at was British and so she detested them and had all of the superstition around them which fascinated me more and um, it got me really researching them and becoming fascinated in my own way. And from Sicily, I moved to Atlanta, and once I saw all of the murals in Atlanta, I kind of knew that that's where I wanted my work to go. What also inspires me is the power of art to bring people together. And so, in living in Atlanta, I started a business called Think Greatly which became a platform to do my own personal art but also became a platform for communities to come together as part of my social practice and became an opportunity for me to curate female-driven collaborations. I have definitely been influenced by Atlanta in my art. I love walking around and seeing public art everywhere and when I go to other cities all I see are blank canvases on all these buildings that need art. I also really love the diversity that living in Atlanta offers. I think that it's really a unique part of our city that so many different kinds of people have a seat at the table for the decisions that are made and the art that is created and the kind of cultural events that we have. I recently worked with Atlanta United and created a portrait of Letitia Springer of 399 Fridge um, in Virginia Highland. I also used to live in Old Fourth Ward and used my relationship with the neighborhood um, as a platform to cultivate community projects. So I have some um, community projects in Old Fourth Ward along the Highland and Randolph Bridges. I also have projects outside of Metro Atlanta in um, Hapeville, Norcross, a big one in Swanee that was created earlier this year, and also in Marietta, which if people wanted to see my paintings, I'm represented by DK Gallery in Marietta, which is a great contemporary gallery in the square. Really a great place to see all different kinds of art from artists around the city, and the region actually.
2: Painter, sculptor, and muralist Lawrence Stunberg. In our series, Speaking of the Arts, more information about Stumberg's work is available on our website, wabe.org citylights. Coming up, producer Summer Evans goes behind the curtain for SCADFASH Museum of Fashion's Photography Exhibit Backstage Pass. You're tuned to W.A.B.E. At This is City Lights on W.A.B.E. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for being here. When models walk down a runway, they appear remarkably poised and pulled together. Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes? In a new exhibit at the Skagfash Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta, photographer Robert Farrer reveals the chaos and teamwork behind the curtain. City Lights producer Summer Evan sat down with Robert Farrer and curator Rafael Gomez to discuss the show Backstage Pass, Dior, Galliano, Jacobs, and McQueen. On view now through April 16th.
1: In the late 90s, you started out as one of the only people to go backstage of a fashion show and take photographs of the models and the chaos that was occurring behind the scenes. What inspired you to do this?
6: Well, when I first started, I was actually shooting the runway, so I was at the end of the catwalk with many other photographers. And, and that was wonderful, it was great. I, I, I loved doing it, but at a certain point it wasn't really challenging anymore. And then one day I saw somebody disappearing off just before a show and, and disappearing behind the curtain, so to speak, down the runway and, and off where the uh, the girls would come out. And I sort of was a bit curious and thought, oh, I, I need, to, need to see what's going on back there. And uh, and so I, I ran along, had a look, and I, it's just this new world that opened up to me. It was incredible. Um, I think I've said many times, you know, you go back there as a photographer or somebody with an artistic eye and you just see creativity everywhere you look. So I ran back, got my camera and basically stayed backstage from that point onwards. Um, I loved it. It was a sort of a curiosity and a natural progression, I think, from from the runway. I, I was fascinated by the fashion, but backstage I was actually able to get up close and personal, see it those few seconds before the editors might see it. And, uh, and obviously from a photog- photographic point of view, um, I was able to document it in a personal way. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see it on the runway, but you're essentially taking a similar photograph to, to many other people, whereas backstage, everything you do certainly at that point was, was very individual and you could, you can actually create something your own style.
1: And when I was looking through the exhibit, I noticed there's like a mixture of playfulness from the models that you just don't get when you see them on the runway and they have to really turn it on and be serious and everything. Uh,
6: you're right. I mean, it's it's possibly in the past few years, it, it's gone even more extreme that way with uh, girls being told to have no expression, walk fast, follow each other at exactly the same distance. And it, it's, it's become a bit of, in some cases, a very automated
1: robotic
6: yeah robotic's a good word exactly i mean in the earlier days i suppose before i ever heard of a fashion show you know they'd sashay down the the runway they might be introduced by the designer sort of saying this is look number 71 on sasha and they you know wander in and out of the chairs and turn a little bit and i believe that chanel did something similar to that this season at their spring summer 2022 show um with photographers around the catwalk as well sort of harking back to to the sort of 70s and 80s and the girls then I guess had a lot more personality and they would spin and, and interact with the audience. Um, from my time pretty much apart from perhaps a Galliano show or a Dior show you know the girls were fairly ordered and controlled it's the wrong word but you know they were given instructions on on how to, how to behave. Of course backstage depending on what they're wearing uh, and depending on what show they were doing, certainly with the the four shows, the four designers that, that, that are showcased in, in the exhibition, the girls needed to have some character. And certainly when they got into those dresses, they took on a personality because you know the clothes are just so wonderful that you 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 feel you know you know how you feel when you get dressed into especially when you're going out. You know you're gonna you you feel a certain way. You stand a certain way. You. You know, you might look in the mirror and sort of turn your shoulders and look over your back and, you know, admire how this dress is floating out behind you. In many cases, uh, in the images, you know, there, there's a personality coming through or a persona, maybe the dresser's persona, coming through in the images. But certainly, certainly at those four design houses, you know, the girls would automatically have fun in a sense.
1: Is this why you wanted to exhibit photos from this era, which ranges from the late 90s to the early 2000s, because of the personality that's shown through in well, these photographs? You know, I
6: think Sally Singer said it very well um, when she said it, it was a golden age, a sort of zeitgeist uh, for fashion. And, and also it's a vanished world because then it was a very private world. Very few people would would see it. You know, the dresses, the designers, the hair and makeup, perhaps, uh, and a few photographers, not not many. But now you know, that's gone and you're virtually seeing the clothes backstage before they're even shown on the catwalk. And in some cases, you know, they'll be, they'll be out there on, on social media so, so quickly. I love the idea of sharing these images, which haven't been seen before. I mean, i shot Millions of images over the years, and uh, you know when I was working with Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, British, Elle, you know they could only publish a handful. I mean it's very expensive. You know, page in a magazine costs a lot to produce, and between the adverts and, um, and and the articles they have to write, you know there aren't sounds crazy, but there aren't loads of pages that they can fill with with fashion imagery. You know, a magazine can only be so big. So I might, if I was lucky, get maybe a hundred, seventy, a hundred images published each season and this leaves tens of thousands of images left unseen you know sort of stuffed away in boxes I mean it's very organized but uh, but still you know they are in boxes and uh, if we're not showing them in exhibitions and places they're just going to stay in those boxes
1: that's really cool I didn't even think about it that these photos wouldn't have circulated through social media or been printed so these are never before seen photos of backstage fashion shows
6: I wouldn't say they have all never been seen before, (laughs) but obviously they're in the books. But certainly the vast majority, I'd say 90% of the images that are out there have not been seen before in a wider environment than the books that we've recently published yet.
5: Mm -hmm.
1: Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Raphael, can you give us an overview of this collection for people that aren't familiar with the difference between Marc Jacobs and Alexander McQueen? Can you kind of describe what the different designers' looks are, and what's their kind of specialty?
0: Absolutely. When you first come into the gallery, you will see the area that's dedicated to John Galliano. It's very playful, very based in history, incredible hair and makeup. It's very conceptual. But if you notice the clothes, they are wearable. I will not say commercial, but interesting clothes that you are able to purchase and wear it's potter, what it's in English uh, ready to wear and uh, from John Galliano you come to the area of Marc Jacobs that it's very different you will see it's of course an American designer uh, an American brand Uh, Everything, it's, uh, the clothes are very different. Uh, They're very fun, very wearable, very desirable. Like the models in the backstage, they wanted to keep the clothes. (laughs) It's a very good mood in the backstage. You will see like, it's the area that it's the most fun of them all. It's, uh, you will really see the easiness in the air in the show, Marc Jacobs working on models himself, it's a few good experience. Then across, you come to Alexander McQueen, an enormous production, all these incredible show pieces. It's a mix of ready-to-wear and, yeah, actually, couture, you can say, like, the way that these gowns were created, it's an entire intonation it's the entire feeling that it's brought to the runway it's very theatrical very conceptual the hair and makeup it's unbelievable and uh, but you can feel the tension in the air you see like the opposite like for Mark Jacobs and McQueen that there is a tension there especially in the hair and makeup area the models are coming they are getting this extraordinary hair and makeup and it's they are on a time they the time it's sticking you can see the tension in the air then you come to the end with christian dior you have a mix of uh, haute couture and pret-à-porter shows and it's again enormous production the prêt-à-porter, of course, it's wearable. Then you have like this incredible concepts of haute couture. Once they are created, they bring like a mood, they bring inspiration. And then after from this collection, they will create wearable pieces or pieces that clients can order. they will be adjusted to this client. So they are more wearable or they are wearable. They become wearable because some of them, they are well, they are sculptures, they are installations almost. And also what I love, love, love from the last part of the exhibition, it's the inspiration that that it's taken from history, from back at the time, like from different cultures. I must say this is also the time that the internet was not so available, early days of the internet, if you would want to learn more you will need to go to a library and look for books, look for what it is. And I remember the time that this collections, they came out. I was a fashion student and I was learning a lot about different cultures and uh, different periods through John Galliano's Dior shows. And now sometimes it's appointed as cultural appropriation, but I think it's more cultural appreciation I'm Brazilian myself. And I was always hoping that back at the time, uh, because John Galliano would go to countries and spend two three weeks learning about the culture to create these incredible collections. And I was always hoping. I hope he would come to Brazil and spend some time and have like this homage to our culture on the runway. And it's very interesting to show the students like all of this before you would have all this knowledge just on your phone. And I think our students can, will, will take a lot from this exhibition. I'm very happy to have it here.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you mentioned the culture appropriation because I, when I was noticing a lot of the models, there was a lot of Asian-inspired fashion, you know, on white models and black models. And I was wondering how that has been received. I know things can be perceived differently in the early 2000s versus now, but you're saying as like a Brazilian that, you see it not as appropriation but more as like being inspired by that culture
0: this is now my personal opinion right right you must also see we live in different times this was early 2000s and i'm as a foreigner myself i would i would not have been offended if he would have come to brazil and taking inspiration from our culture and show it to the world like in a, in a very respectful way and it was taking something for this culture adapting it to to hot couture for like for this incredible presentations and showing the world a, a bit of our history and and our culture i would have been happy if he would have come to brazil and popularized our culture worldwide and what he did in the past was really traveling to these countries learning a lot about culture of those countries uh history art a lot about art if you see like like talking about the asian dresses like especially the origami ones you will see a lot of paintings uh, very iconic paintings on those dresses and I remember back at the time before internet, uh, having this printed on magazines and having like all the the text and explaining I learned so much about foreign cultures through those uh, fashion exhibitions. And I know nowadays it can be received in a different way, but back at that time, the time, those shows educated me and, my, and, and, and I remember my, my classmates when we were studying fashion, these magazines, they were also expensive. One will buy one, the other one will buy something else. We would share those and photocopy it so we could have like all these images and text for us because we were learning a lot out of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Robert, what I thought was really cool was seeing these fashion shows from the early 2000s and how trends are so cyclical, you know, like we've come full circle with now it's trendy for color blocking and wearing jumpsuits and the knee-high lace boots. Was this intentional when showing that these photographs from this era and how it is so similar to what's trending currently?
6: Absolutely not. No, I think we were just going through and choosing what we felt was relevant and would work together and and what sort of attracted the eye. so no there's no from from my point of view there was no educational purpose in that sense perhaps from Raphael's point of view he might have had that in the back of his mind bearing in mind that the backstage my backstage career let's call it I stopped that in about 2012 and stepped away from the fashion shows. At the moment, I'm going back into it again. Um, we've been working quite a bit with Fendi recently, which has, has been an incredible experience with Kim Jones. But in terms of looking in that cyclical way, no, I don't. From my point of view, it wasn't an intention, but certainly one of the one of the main reasons for getting these images out is to to share it with students and fashion lovers around the world and. Allow them to have a glimpse into the world that I was privileged enough to um, to inhabit for a, you know a good fifteen years or so.
1: Mm. Well, it is cool for me. I found a connection because I have. A jumpsuit very similar to the one I saw in the photograph. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's from 20 years ago. Very cool that I'm now wow. wearing fashion very similar to that.
6: But what people need to learn as well, I mean, just taking that and twisting it around a little bit. I mean, I know obviously the the, the clothing that's shown in in this show, for the most part, you know, they're they're very luxury items. Um, certainly in the case of McQueen, Galliano, and and. D. You know they're, they're they're out of the price range of, of, of most people. Uh, Mark Jacobs is also obviously a very luxury label, but perhaps not quite at the price point of the others, especially you know as they're now in many cases museum pieces. But it just does go to show that people can recycle. You can buy nicely once. You can keep it. You know for. 10-15 years if it's in fashion this year and it sort of peters out then maybe in three or four years time it'll come back so you don't have to go out and buy new buy fast fashion you know you can actually build up a, a beautiful wardrobe over the years and and you know bring things back in when they come back into fashion or maybe bring them back into fashion yourself you know those lace-up knee-high boots you're talking about or your jumpsuit <laughs> perfect example uh, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Or you could raid your mother's closet. It's probably back in.
6: (laughs) That's the best thing to do, of course.
1: So alongside the photographs in the exhibit, viewers can hear the sounds of what it is like to be behind the scenes of a fashion show. The chaos, you hear the high heels walking across the floor. Why did you want to include this element as part of the show?
0: One idea was to have experience intensified for our visitors just to give a bit of the feeling how busy, stressful and how uh, hectic it is in a in backstage. I used to work for Vivian Westwood and I worked in backstage many many times probably bumped into Robert Ferrer many times as well back at the time without really being aware of and yes you don't have much time and everything needs to be done very fast and uh, there is a, a an incredible energy on the backstage and uh we worked together with a professor of sound design from SCAD, and we created a feeling for it. Like at the beginning, like uh, all the, the the people walking and 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 talking, and then uh, in the area that we have, like for example, Mark Jacobs with all these wrecks of clothes. You you will hear the wrecks of clothes moving. You will hear a steamer. You will hear a photo photographers taking pictures everywhere in the exhibition, and then in the hair and makeup area from Alexander McQueen. You can hear a hairdryer. You can hear like uh, the, the sounds that you would hear in, in a backstage area because also the images in a very large format, you feel almost immersed in them and and, and the sound intensifies this feeling. Mm-hmm.
1: No, you're right. It definitely felt like an immersive experience. Can you talk about the projections that are a part of Backstage Paths?
0: Absolutely. Like we had uh, four projections in the exhibition. We have one for each designer and uh, they were made by SCAD alumni. And they used to work as docents here at the museum. And then we commissioned a film for each area. Of course, Robert has like an incredible archive. And what you can see in these projections are, the images that are available on the books. For each designer, you will see like this montage of images. So you have a better feeling of the timeline that we are showing the exhibitions that goes from late 90s to mid like 2010, summer eight, and uh Yeah, it intensifies the timeline feeling for each area. And then we will have shortly as well, a documentary film from uh, Karen Morrison. That's a dear friend of Robert and also a friend of SCAD. She is creating a montage that it's following Robert in different backstage. It's a documentary like seeing how fast everything is. And uh, she is uh, working on this montage and we will have it here at the museum shortly.
1: Very cool. So one of the more somber photos was of Alexander McQueen who sadly died by suicide in 2010. And the photo you took Robert was one year prior. It's a very lively photo. He's wearing a purple bunny suit and his head mask is off and he's just like grinning ear to ear at a model and kind of like surprise the model, like, Hey, it's me, Alexander McQueen. And she's looking back at him like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, when you were deciding on the photos you wanted to print for this show, How did you feel when you looked back on that one?
6: I remember that moment really well. I mean, that was a show, and I always get this wrong, but I believe it was Natural Distinction, Unnatural Selection. And it was in Paris. It was a venue that uh, was the first time he'd shown in this particular venue. And as the girls walked up this ramp to the catwalk area, there was a big uh, earth being projected onto the wall behind them and they were walking up through these stuffed animals i mean giraffes lions polar bears and they were flanking the side of the runway i guess the irony of him in his playful bunny suit uh, running up at the end of the show to take his bow with you know this funny bunny hat on or head on was you know a very strong message to to the world but the reason I wanted to include this is his fantastic smile. I think many people have, you know, th- this is this is a designer who I met on many occasions backstage at his shows, occasionally at parties in in, in, in London around. But whenever I, I saw him, he was obviously at his most pressured, um, you know, six months worth of creation. Is about to be unveiled to the world. You got to get it right. Um, there are always challenges at, at shows, things going wrong backstage, last-minute panics. So you know it wasn't a moment to, to to be getting to know somebody. And he was always so focused on what he was doing, and such a, a perfectionist for every detail. He would be on the clothes before they went out on the runway, making sure. Everything was perfect. Um, Dresses backstage would be being stitched up until the last minute to get them just right and fitted to the girls. It was uh, a very, very intense atmosphere. And I think this for me just shows that joy, the elation, the relief, the, the happiness that he was feeling at that moment. And also I wanted to show that many people would see him as, I guess, An incredibly intense, maybe angry, maybe brooding person, but there's another side to him.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is it. No, I really loved that photograph. It was, it was a, like you said, it was a beautiful side to see of him that we might not often see in like the normal photographs, the posed ones, you know, for media conferences and that sort of thing. So, exactly.
6: I mean, the the things you would see in the media, uh, which were far more posed, would be very intense, I would say. So this is just showing the, yeah, the lighter side of, of, of uh, an Alexander McQueen that I witnessed. Hmm.
1: Robert, lastly, what do you want the students and those that come to the exhibit to take away from these photographs when seeing the other side of the models and the chaos that ensues backstage?
4: well as i said
6: before i want them to see this this vanished or vanishing vanishing world that that i was fortunate enough to to roll around in for for a few years i want them to see the beauty of the designs i want them to understand in a way especially with students that you can't do these things by yourself that it's all about teamwork um, you know there were there were sometimes large and sometimes very, very small but intense groups of people helping to create you know, these wonderful experiences, um, the show designers, the casting directors, all the people that you see in the background of these images, in many cases, are just as important as the the subject. And that's that's why I chose to photograph them in this way so you can see what's going on in the background. You can see the chaos. You can see the intensity of the work that's going on. And in terms, you know, in my terms, you know, these photographs never would have been taken without or possible without the cooperation of you know the magazines that we were collaborating with my assistants my lighting director um and and from the as i said the designer's point of view you know the teams the creatives the hair and the makeup the uh, the hat designers the jewelry designers all these people that, that have come together you know in one place over a few days or maybe a few months to actually create this theatrical production, which has, you know, hopefully given joy to, to, to many thousands of people over the years.
1: No, it definitely showcases the village that it takes in order to make a fashion show come yeah. together.
2: <laughs> Photographer Robert Ferrer and curator Rafael Gomez. The exhibit Backstage Past, Dior, Cagliano, Jacobs, and McQueen is on view now through April 16th at the Skadvash Museum of Fashion and Film in Atlanta. More information is on our website, wabe.org citylights City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from the Atlanta Magazine food editor and columnists on favorite new Atlanta restaurants. Plus, Reach Theater has a steampunk recalibration of the importance of being earnest. Coming to Hapeville. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website wabe.org slash city lights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim troves Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you
2: in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more, Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
4: The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious become a member now go online to wabe.org/donate
1: and thanks